Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Who are you carrying all those bricks for, anyway? God? Is that it? God? Well, I tell you, let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel. He sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, don't swallow. <laughs> and while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted, and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him, in spite of all his imperfections. I'm a fan of man! I'm a humanist. I rest my case. Happy heresies, and welcome to the desert of the real. You just heard from one of my favorite depictions of the devil in popular culture. Right up there was Satan in that Charlie Daniels song about the fiddle. You got Al Pacino scolding John Wick on the truth of this terra damnata. From the Devil's Advocate, part of that squadron of varied Gnostic movies of the late 90s that included Fight Club, The Matrix, Dark City, The 13th Floor, Existence, The Truman Show, and many others. Humanity almost woke up for the new millennium, but then came that tuning fork arconic ritual over the Atlantic waters, and the rise of new atheism, and patriotism, and projecting on Muslims, and soy activism. All that impeded so many red pills from reaching the gut of civilization, ready to embrace Hermes and Sophia. Well played, Yaldi Baldi. Well played. You make dogs die when they eat chocolate. You know, Don Jr., testicles, that's terrible design. You know, you've had some bad ideas in the past, but this is just the worst. I honestly, I, I, I had hoped that the secret to the universe was something a bit more complex than just God's a frizzy-haired homicidal lunatic. And here we are, trying to wake up one more time. 
some of us succeeding, while most of meat sacks collapse in Borg mentality, driven by a hundred forms of fear, as they say in AA. Here we F and R. Sir, this is a Wendy's. So Merry Matrix and a Heilig New Year, as I say tongue-in-cheek during the holidays. 2022 is coming up, and the apocalypses are only going to have more testosterone. We're never going back to 2019, to any old normal. And the truth is that the old normal was a sad Logan's Run joke. Thus, we run with those searching for the truth and avoid those who have found it in this age of Hermes. The psychotic drowns. Where the mystic swims, you're drowning. As Jason Louvre wrote, exemplifying the ethos of Aeon Bite, the universe is already alive and conscious, and all AI infotainment does is trap consciousness in an artificial box so the divine can't get through. The great choice of this century will be between entertainment and ecstasy. Real spiritual practice means taking a neurotic and useless product of modernity and getting them to surrender to the unavoidable pain of existence to the point that they can't see through their own bullshit and actually begin to see and effectively help other beings. It's about the things you survived. As it's written, the world breaks everyone and afterward... Some are strong at the broken places. So merry Matrix and a Heilig New Year again. And nothing says the holidays more than a show about Lucifer, eh? Well, it does in Gnosticism, because those ancient heretics were always turning everything around and upside down in their deconstructive mysticism. Plus, and in a way, it's more important than ever to understand Lucifer, as he shares the same archetypal DNA of rebel or trickster like Sophia, Prometheus, Mercury, and even the Gnostic Jesus. And the alleged Prince of Darkness is still so misunderstood, just like we freaks and outcasts, we of the broken places are in Mithra's abode. You think I am a devil? but only because I have lived in hell. For this infernal task, we have the pleasure of being joined at the Virtual Alexandria by Eduardo Cano to discuss his devilish new book, The Lucifer Mystery Revealed. Please allow me to introduce the morning star across history and mythology in ways you might not have known. Excellent research by Eduardo, and get ready for a fiery interview. You brought Satan to my wedding? Well, he's changed. Yes, the devil, the devil don't change. The devil changes you. In the interview, I mentioned that Satan is not that prominent in Gnostic scriptures. Lucifer, as a light bringer, manifests as Jesus or Sophia, and evil spirits we got legion with the various archons. As a tester or cosmic prosecutor, Satan, referred to as the adversary, appears in the Nag Hammadi Library's authoritative discourse. He spies on humanity and infects the human heart with desires. In Justin's Book of Baruch, 
Satan is an angel of Eden. In the secret book of James, Satan is mentioned by Jesus as a figure that can tempt, oppress, and persecute. If the devil himself walked this earth, he'd surely be working in PR. I mentioned in our chat that the Sethians had no role for old Nick in their works, but I was wrong when I thought about it. For example, in the trimorphic Pretenoia, the adversary is a henchman of the Demiurge, an obstructive force. In the book of Allogenes, Satan tempts Allogenes, or the stranger in Greek, on Mount Tabor, and is described as the ruler of the world, a reference to his demiurgic role. Of course, in Cathar and Bogomil doctrine, he is known as Satanas, and also fulfills the role of the demiurge, being responsible for the creation of the material world. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The truth is that Lucifer remains as enigmatic as Sophia, Abraxas, Baphomet, and so many other deities of boundary eradication that allow us to co-create with them their identities and recode reality itself. There are very few things that I will defend with true passion. Medical marijuana, the biblical Satan as a metaphor for rebellion against tyranny. Deep down inside, the other truth is that Lucifer represents that bad boy on the edges of town. The devil without a cause we all secretly want to be, because we know that complete sovereignty was our natural state before falling into the black iron prison. The Gnostics knew this very well, part of that off-worlder club I keep talking about. As Eric Davis wrote, the Neoplatonists ascent through the spheres, the Gnostics' sudden awakening, the desert monk's rejection of the Ilan Vital, is not simply a philosophical error or the mark of patriarchy, but is fired by an intensely lucid yearning of the highest of goals, liberation. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Yes, these are bruises from fighting. Yes, I'm comfortable with that. I am enlightened. That's what we all want. Why you came to the virtual Alexandria with your host, Miguel Connor. That's Lucifer. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. It's hard to hate someone you understand. Last summer, I taught my son Sebastian how to ride a bicycle. There was that magical moment, timeless and transcendental. When I let go and he just, he just, just kept pedaling. He didn't turn his head back. It seemed he suddenly didn't even know I existed. Sebastian just kept pedaling, face glowing with confident joy, pedaling down the street. I was so proud of him. And it struck me then that Sebastian was exhilarated, not because he had learned to ride a bike. No, it was more. Sebastian experienced in those seconds something much greater. He was free at that moment, truly unrestricted from mundane reality, conventional movement, and even the safe cocoon of a parent. He was in a higher reality he probably had forgotten about. What he felt was true liberation, 
and there is nothing like it in the universe. That moment you can pedal that bike for yourself, nothing owns you, and you are in the company of the wild breeze and the unknown yet perilous promises of the road ahead. I'm sure you've felt this in your life in different circumstances, but as mentioned, it is your natural state of being. That's what an angel is. Dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world. Feel that freedom. Remember that freedom. And know it's yours for the taking. Know too that the devil feels the same way, whether he wins the fiddle or not. Let us pedal into the unknown with our interview. Ah, but first, another favorite depiction of old Nick, this time from Mark Twain's The Mysterious Stranger. As with the devil's advocate, Satan appears to the protagonist and explains to him the truth about reality. Dream time is coming. Strange indeed that you should not have suspected that your universe and its contents were only dreams, visions, fiction. Strange, <laughs> because they are so frankly and hysterically insane, like all dreams. A god who could make good children as easily as bad, yet preferred to make bad ones, who could have made every one of them happy, yet never made a single happy one who made them prize their bitter life, yet stingingly cut it short, who gave his angels eternal happiness unearned, yet required his other children to earn it, who gave his angels painless lives, yet cursed his other children with biting miseries and maladies of mind and body, who mouths justice and invented hell, mouths mercy and invented hell, mouths golden rules, and forgiveness multiplied by seventy times seven, and invented hell, who mouths morals to other people, and has none himself, who frowns upon crimes, yet commits them all, who created man without invitation, then tries to shuffle the responsibility for man's acts upon man instead of honorably placing it where it belongs, upon himself. And finally, with altogether divine obtuseness, invites this poor abused slave to worship him. You perceive now that these things are all impossible except in a dream. You perceive that they are pure and puerile, insanities, the silly creations of an imagination that is not conscious of its freaks, in a word, that they are a dream, and you the maker of it. The dream marks are all present. You should have recognized them earlier. This is the A.M. Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of having Eduardo Cano to discuss his book, the Lucifer Mystery Revealed. 
Eddie, thank you very much for coming to the virtual Alexandria. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it a lot. So much good material and a lot of stuff that's going to be clarified or engage or ignite conversation with the audience because, well, you can't beat Lucifer with the topic. And with us, we also have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm just fine this evening over here. And um, looking forward to having Eddie shed some light on this subject. <laughs> there you go. There's the first pun. Yes. Please yes. allow me to introduce the first pun of the night. Awesome. <laughs> so, so awesome. Well, Eddie, uh, let's start with you. Uh, what made you decide to write the Lucifer Mystery Revealed? Uh, as you write, you were simply looking for the truth, like many of us. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, <clears throat> I'm 27 years old now, and I first got into esotericism and occultism probably, um, and I was probably about 12 years old when I first learned all the basics, you know, Illuminati, Freemasonry, Knights Templars. But uh, from that point up until I was about 25, um, when I just started writing the book, uh, right before the pandemic hit, I kind of uh, realized that I wanted to write something, you know, something that, that I thought would be powerful and uh, useful for the truth community. And with everything that I've learned up to the point, I decided to start with this subject because um, religion uh, primarily has been a huge part of my early life and also my occult studies. So I wanted to, once I realized who Lucifer really was, I felt like that information was important and that the world and the truth community in specific um, should know who he is and what he is. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, your book is uh, basically explains how so many have dropped the ball. I mean, we obviously, and in very negative ways across history, we obviously know what the Abrahamic religions have done with Satan and the battle of Satan and Yahweh, uh, but you also explain that even occultists have been sort of misguided by the uh, who they think Lucifer is, uh, humanists as well. It seems uh, everybody's missed the boat, right? Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much my conclusion in the book. I kind of go over the church and you know how they misconstrued uh, the the Old Testament and also the occultists as well. The occultists, in my mind, are kind of just hearkening on what the Christians thought of and took it even further to other more fantasies. Yeah, and here we are. But why don't we clarify these things? And these days, what do you consider yourself? You seem to be pretty much uh, in the middle of everything. You don't really seem to have a stance on anything. Yeah, well, I'm a, I would say I'm a centralist, but uh, I grew up in a religious family, both Christian and Catholic, my dad's side being Catholic, my mom's side being Christian. But even early on, I, I knew there was something deeper than what I was being told. Um, but as of now, I'm a, I'm a very neutral person. I just like to look at the facts. But as you know, most people say I am spiritual, not religious. That's, I'm kind of that kind of person. I do believe in a higher force a higher consciousness that we can all tap into and, and be guided by. 
Very cool and good stands. Well, I think uh, I thought there's so many ways we can enter your book, but I thought we'd just get to the thesis itself. And again, as I tell people, in fiction, you kind of hide the thesis. Uh, you don't give away the climax. But in nonfiction, usually you give it away and you start arguing for it. For example, uh, somebody might come up with a book, uh, Jesus Never Existed, or Elaine Pagels, uh, Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas and John are actually fighting each other. And then you work from there. So I thought we'd do that. And it really comes down to the the real origin of Lucifer goes way before Christianity, way before Judaism, certainly way before Islam. Uh, and it's it comes from an ancient Samaria, right? That's where we find the first Lucifer. Yes, yeah. So uh, in the book, I, I get right to it and I tell you who I think Lucifer is in chapter three out of six chapters. So I don't like wait till the end to tell <laughs> <Yeah>. you <laughs> who I think that is. And most of us in the truth community already know who he is and who he, uh, yeah, who he was. But yes, he goes all the way back to ancient Sumeria with the um, ancient Anunnaki gods who um, express wisdom through serpent imagery as well. Well, why don't we talk about uh, the myths that this comes to? You write that really to understand the primordial roots of Lucifer, the first archetypal image of Lucifer, we have to look at two brothers, Enki and Enlil. And I'm glad we're talking about this, Eddie, because... Uh, one of the requests I get a lot is, uh, man, you need to do more shows on the Sumerians and ancient Sumer. And uh, I was doing some shows, but unfortunately, I kind of got off the path about two years ago. So you came at the right time, Eddie, and your scholarship is very good. I love it. So, But going back to what I ask, uh, tell us about the myth of Enki and Enel. Okay. Uh, before I get into that, I just want to give the audience... A background as to how I got into that as well. Sure, please do. Um, again, so I grew up in a religious family, but early on knew something was was up. And um, in, in about high school, in high school, when I was about 13, I discovered Zechariah Sitchin. Of course, the author, for those who don't know, is uh, wrote a series of books in the 70s called The Earth Chronicles. And in those series, uh, he he promotes or uh, proposes the basically the ancient alien theory that we're all well familiar with now. Right. And so Zechariah Sitchin was the dude who really, you know, blew my mind with the Anunnaki story and all of that. But it went further into how the Old Testament was based on that whole story and everything. But um, not to get into all of that, um, eventually I learned the story of Enki and Enlil. And according to the ancient Sumerians, our ancestors um, from Iraq, ancient Iraq, the gods had a, a hierarchical, hierarchical uh, family. And at the top was Anu. Anu was the father of the Anunnaki, and below him was his two sons. And one of them was Enki, um, Lord of Earth, and he was the rightful heir no, sorry, he, he was the firstborn, but not the rightful heir to the throne because he was born of a concubine. And then there is Enlil, the younger son, but he was born um, to a half-sister, so he was a rightful heir, the rightful heir to the throne. And all throughout Sumerian, Sumerian and, and Babylonian and Akkadian mythology, you kind of see 
a rivalry between these two brothers because of that succession and lineage. And um, you can really see that played out in the Sumerian and Akkadian flood story, where it is decided by the gods, primarily Enlil, to wipe out mankind in this coming flood. And then Enki um, deceivingly goes behind the back of Enlil and saves humanity through this pre-Noah character in the Sumerian mythology. Yes, and as you write, uh, Enki is remembered as the god of wisdom and creation. He was a deep, wise god of the mystic underworld, a god of the marshlands and so forth, the lower regions of earth. So what are some of the symbols associated with him so we can get it? I'm, so, I'm assuming if it's, we're talking marshlands and underworld, what do we have, snakes? Or what are some of his symbols associated with Enki? Yeah, some of the symbols right off the bat are definitely uh, serpents. He's been uh, serpents, and he's one of his other names is Ea, which is a uh, god of the waters. So he is known, uh, yes, as the god of the waters, uh, god of uh, wisdom through his serpent um, symbology, and he is known as like the the engineer um, scientist. He, it was said that he um, brought, that he raised the land out of the waters. So you can imagine these Anunnaki, these beings coming here a long time ago in um, the Middle East, kind of being souped up in marshlands. And Enki being a scientist and engineer kind of created um, artificial canals and, and, and kind of made the, the environment and land suitable and habitable for them to to do what they needed to do at the times. So because of this, he was seen as a god of craftsmanship, of creation, of being able to, um, you know, wield nature. And he is responsible for the creation of humans, right? Yeah, that's the most important part of his creation aspect. Absolutely. In the um, Enuma Elish, I believe it is, the ancient Sumerian text, um, when the gods are working they decide they don't want to work anymore, so they pretty much uh, ask Enlil. <laughs> Lazy bastards. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. I, would, I don't blame them. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, yeah, now we blame them because now the work is on us. <laughs> yeah, but, we're uh, trying to make robots and they'll take our job soon. So <laughs> Yeah, now we're playing Anunnaki. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Enki was asked to create a worker, you know, to be a surrogate for the gods. And well, that became us. So that was his most important creation aspect is the fact that he literally was the one who scientifically engineered what would become the homo sapien. And he also was very, you might say, we weren't just his, as with the other gods, we weren't just his pet. He actually really was fond of us, of humans. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All the texts make it pretty clear that he was that he admired us and not just him, but uh, some of his companions and what seems like his family members did admire us and uh, took us up to the heavens and on a few occasions to show us certain secrets and things. And um, in the book, I kind of explain, as many other authors have and researchers that this is kind of the age old Garden of Eden story, you know, the serpent, the Anunnaki giving us knowledge that some of the other Anunnaki might not have wanted us to have. 
And he also, during the flood, I believe, he also helped some of the humans survive. Yeah. So that's the age-old Noah story, which is, you know, predated in the Sumerian accounts. But yeah, he, he, uh, he helped some of us survive. You have Enki and Enlil, and those two, do they have a sort of a competition? I mean, is this the primordial template for Satan and Yahweh, or is Enki basically sort of uh, been split off? Well, um, what I've concluded is that uh, Enlil is kind of more of the Yahweh um, aspect of things. And Zechariah Sitchin, I got this mostly from Zechariah Sitchin, and then after kind of um, going off and doing my own reading to see how he got there, it makes sense. And his, in one of his books, Divine Encounters, he makes that grand conclusion that if if anybody was to be Yahweh, it's going to be Enlil, or at least an amalgamation of him and his sons and specific family. Um, and if anybody is going to be Lucifer, it's for sure going to be Enki. But as far as Satan, now this is where things get complex because Satan, I don't really go too deep into Satan in the book, but um, Satan is also a fallacy because in the Old Testament, Satan didn't exist as an uppercase character. That was also something that came later on. Yeah, we we definitely want to get into that again. It's uh, it gets complicated because even today somebody will say, "Ah, oh, you're being this is Luciferian." And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about satanic evil? Are you talking about humanistic? Are you talking about light bringer? And even some people, as you probably know, in Europe and Latin America, the devil is sort of like a folk spirit, right? He's the guy who yeah. steals your sheep and breaks down your car. And, you know, he's the naughty <laughs> guy in the fields. He's not the ruler of hell. So it gets pretty complicated, but I think we'll, we'll definitely unpack and, uh, figure all of this out in this interview and uh, it's exciting i think a lot of people have a, some good ideas and i'm sure a lot of people will be like no 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 because people yeah. get very married to their idea of satan or lucifer which is kind of ironic but <laughs> exactly so, this is 2021 yeah. what are you this <laughs> what are you gonna do and but you've got to admit isn't it fascinating that the idea of the anunnaki really has some amazing sci-fi vibes. And I remember my friend Acharya S, you know, uh, blessed be her memory. She was into the Sumerians and she would research and she she hated the fact that people thought they were aliens and mm-hmm. she could prove it by their texts and all that. But you got to admit, it's uh, it looks pretty cool as an ancient astronaut story, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And um, when I first heard it as a teenager, I mean, yeah, I was freaking out and i was like man (laughs) extraterrestrials created us but but now in my matured mind i don't run so fast to the extraterrestrial thing because even though it's there in the text they talk about heaven and space and that kind of stuff i don't try to be so fanatical to the extraterrestrial thing um i try to stay more here on earth and the impact that that the ancient past had here on earth and our practices even though personally I do dive deep into, you know, the philosophy of things. Yeah, it's a good idea. I always just stay open-minded or else uh, once you get a 
into orthodoxies and black and white, you sort of lose the plot, the richness, and of course, the, the kernels of new information and blind spots. So I agree with you. And yeah, what about you, Vince? What do you, I'm just out of curiosity, what do you think of the Anunnaki or the ancient astronaut theory? Is that something you've, uh, you've, uh, uh, considered or maybe you buy into? Oh yeah, no, I've I've read uh, I've read the uh, Zechariah Sitchin myself, and um, I kind of figure, well, it's possible, you know, it's possible that some sort of other beings or something, whether they're physical or some sort of extra dimensional beings, could have uh, created humanity. That seems to be a uh, I'm I'm committed to that. Um, I'm just un uncertain. I don't have enough information, but. Uh, uh, that that's why I feel about it, but um, there there's some sort of um, motif that keeps repeating in terms of you know like the Anki Enlil story, for example, uh, the Prometheus versus Zeus story um, is very similar, you know, not identical because yeah because you know, Prometheus uh, he liked humanity and Zeus he created you know, humanity very yeah. much with the help of Athena. Yeah, there you go. So and um, and Zeus uh, always abused humanity. And uh, so you got the same thing. <laughs> it's all very proto-Gnostic. And I mean, even, yeah, the idea of uh, uh, in the Gnostic Gospels, you've got uh, the Demiurge creates Adam and he's a worm. He can't move. Sophia has to like breathe life into into him. And you're like, oh, well, that's uh, saying Prometheus needed Athena to breathe life into the humans, except ah, Gnostics yes. decided that mom and dad were going to be at war. While uh, the Greeks thought, well, Athena and uh, Prometheus were just working together. So, but um, yeah, the theme is there. It seems to be there for some reason in the primordial mind or archetypal world of humanity. Yep. And what Eddie says about Satan, absolutely. I mean, you can, it's right in the Bible. If you read the book of Job, there it is, you know, um, he's the adversary. Satan means adversary. So um, he's the guy who, you know, is the prosecuting attorney uh, for mankind. And he's, he's going down there and he's, uh, he's not, he's not the guy that presides over hell and all that stuff. So, but people, uh, you know, Satan and the devil uh, live rent free in, in, you know, in, in the Orthodox heads, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it was something used to scare people. Yeah. Um, just, just like in the, with the Greeks, you know, the Greeks, had it a little closer they had um hades what wasn't like a devil he didn't go around bugging people he just presided uh, over the dead souls and so forth um uh, you know that that was probably part of the part of the lore that became the christian hell you know they just spiced up a little bit right so you know when you study all these different religions and you know in the in antiquity, you find out where all this stuff came from, where it derived from, and the Lucifer thing like it had the that was the Morning Star and the King of Babylon, all that it was mixed up, and then yeah. people reinterpreted. Well, we want to get to that soon. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to stick steal with that. the Sumerians right now before going to history. I didn't mean to steal the whole <laughs> history fire. of Christianity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all good. Yeah, all good. And what do you think, Eddie? Uh, do you think uh, the god Dagon, not the HP Lovecraft Dagon, but the other god Dagon, is that sort of, that's Enki too, right? Or a manifestation of Enki? That's where things get kind of muddled. Um, before I get to that, I kind of want to go back to something you just said. Sure, sure. Um, so when you said people might kind of like get frustrated about Satan is, for, is really real and this kind of stuff. 
Um, yeah, I grew up in a religious family. I get that. And, and for a long time, I grew up thinking Satan was real. Like, so I, I get that 100%. But when I made these, you know, realizations, it broke my paradigm. And I, there was actually some pretty hard times in my life where I had to, like, really leave my old mind. Um, and that continues to happen when I, you know, you know, keep researching and keeping uh, an open mind. And my purpose is to just, you know, know the truth and and teach it, whether it's going to break paradigms or not, you know, but. um, Yeah, it's like the saying, if it can be destroyed by the truth, and it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. I I don't mind changing my mind if something just shatters me. Why not? Rather have the truth. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's why I kind of scrutinize the occultists, too, in the book, because. Um, I admire occultism, you know, I admire, you know, the, the, uh, the madmen of the occult who took it upon themselves to go to the far reaches of the mind to bring us back information. I admire that, but I also have to scrutinize them because a lot of them also, you know, play on the fantasies of archetypes that came out of the Bible. You know, so um, I think really what we're dealing with on a uh, deeper level is archetypes. I think there is a history to the ancient um mythology there is some history there you know some of these anunnaki might have actually been real but i think uh, a lot of it is archetypal um i just listened to your presentation on the braxis and i thought that was phenomenal yeah how thank you, you yeah and how you um kind of concluded for yourself that a braxis is karma yeah it's an idea and ideas might change as we go it's you you just you keep going with the information and tweaking things and here we go i mean yeah uh, uh, thanks there's a, there's a there's very little on abraxas there's a lot on lucifer so I had yeah. to work hard oh yeah i understand yeah that was cool but um so on this thing with dagon now dagon i i came across him i've come across him a lot but i haven't studied him a lot but um from my perception it was i do mention it in the book that it is weird how in the Bible, Baal or Baal is uh, talked about a lot. And he's obviously in opposition to Yahweh. But in the ancient world, before Judaism, Baal was just, Baal was just uh, another deity, a part of the family. But he was seemingly a part of the Enlil family. And so if Enlil is Yahweh, then why is Baal and Yahweh why are Yahweh and Baal in such conflict in the Bible? And I think um, a lot gets lost in translation, you know, over time. And it's obvious that the scribes and writers are capricious about names of deities. Like, for example, um, Astarte, as I say in the Bible, was at one point female and then imagined male and then became female again. So there's definitely some Um, You know, just things that get lost in translation. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Yeah, indeed. I think you talk about the god uh, Athtar, mm-hmm. and that later she became a she. But she was also Athar or Ashira started also as a rebellious deity, right? In yeah, the Baal so, cycle. Uh-huh. So there are some there's a text called the Baal Cycle text where we are introduced to this uh, male deity named Athtar. And uh, but Athtar was actually um actually derived from Astarte, who we know is Ishtar, who we know is Inanna, the Sumerian. Um, goddess who was huge in ancient lore as this vindictive war goddess who was also known as being seductive she you know seduced Gilgamesh tried to seduce Gilgamesh but Gilgamesh was badass and didn't fall for it (laughs) maybe he just like men (laughs) Um, maybe man he did it he did love uh, Enkidu to some extent she she had no chance (laughs) yeah but uh, yeah, so Athtar was a male for some time, and then later on, the Assyrians reimagined him back to the original um, Astarte, uh, the goddess. And, uh, and she was a rebellious goddess, right? A fallen goddess. Yeah, she, definitely. She tried to, yeah, she went against the, the divine order. Yeah, she, even in Sumerian texts, she was always like, um, yeah, just throwing tantrums. Always throwing. She was the grandchild of Anu, the great um, head of the Sumerian pantheon, and she was always kind of throwing tantrums, wanting to um, gain access to power. Yeah, because again, we there we have the prototype of the rebellious Luciferian goddess, and of course, that could easily say that the Gnostics uh, drew from that with Sophia, who rebels against the Pleroma and doesn't want you know throws her own fits in the pleroma because she's not close to the father and na 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 da and she gets cast out. So it's fascinating all these streams of myth and how they affect each other. But as you argue very well, it starts with the Sumerians because they are really the first uh, first mature civilization, if you would, mm-hmm. uh, as far as we know right now in the you know in the West. Um, yes. And uh, you would also, oh, and uh, the other thing, too, which you mentioned, too, and let me quote you, or is it, uh, according to the great deception by Derek P. Gilbert, Baal is mentioned over 100 times, while Satan is only mentioned shameful 14 times, but Satan gets all the press. But like you said, we need to be looking more at Baal and what his role is, because he was very important to these uh, Mediterranean Arabic people. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what we need to do. We need to look at things specifically. But I think it was the the English, uh, the English, you know, Westerner Christianity mindset that kind of messed everything up because everything got translated and reduced. Like God in the Old Testament has seventy two variated titles but those 72 variated titles now just get translated to god so there are a lot of words and phrases and con- contexts that were just translated and reduced and dumbed down 
to God and Satan and this and that, but really we need to go back to the original translations and look at what was truly being said. And even then that's hard because, for example, Baal, as some have said, simply means Lord. It was just the Mm -hmm. title of this God and different tribes in those days probably conflated Baal and Yahweh, they might have been the same one, but in other myths, they might be brothers and El's the major god, who's basically a new. So it's a it's a quite a labyrinth and a rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I haven't done too much studies on, on, on Baal and, and Satan. I do have Elaine Pagels' book on the origin of Satan. And yeah, uh, it might be book. Yeah, it, it might be, you know, something that I do tackle. Um, but I make it clear in the book that, like, I try to separate Lucifer and Satan because they are two different characters. I know the Christian world of things likes to put them together, but they're not when we start to look at the origins of them. Right, yeah, right. look, they, they even, uh, Balzebub really um, is the uh, exactly. Lord of the Flies, right? He's they, they dragged him in and made him related to the devil and so forth just to get a little mileage out of Baal. they dropped the ball on that one (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean there's books demonology books that say abraxas is a demon i'm like oh my god you just can't you can't uh, get out of this (laughs) yeah and demon itself the word demon itself is something that was misunderstood so just to be clear lucifer is the direct descendant of enki and Satan is sort of a tacked on later Lord of Evil guy. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Um, yeah, I guess that what you're saying is Lucifer, the idea of Lucifer comes from Enki. And, and as a light bringer, a helper of humanity, a Promethean figure. Yeah, pretty much. But it, it, you have to kind of, it takes some kind of studying and deconstructing to get to that point. Right. Because if you take Lucifer for face value in the Christian world, um, it's going to go back to Satan. Because in the Christian world, they say Lucifer used to be, or Satan used to be Lucifer. He had this war, this mutiny, and then he became Satan. And in the occult world, um, the the occult world has a a more um, accurate understanding of Lucifer. The occult world, they believe that Lucifer starts with the Garden of Eden that in the Garden of Eden story is where Lucifer's true uh, character kind of originates. But then when you break all of that down and you say, well, hold on, where does the Bible even come from? The Bible comes from the Sumerian mythology. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, if that's true, then who are all these characters in the Garden of Eden and and in Genesis? And you start to realize that these characters, like the serpent in the Garden of Eden, were based on Enki and Enlil. And you also would associate uh, Enki, as we talked about, with Dagon, but also the Egyptian god uh, Ptah or Ta. Yes. Yep. Yep. So that's the. Um, He's the giver of knowledge. Again, this giver of knowledge, helper of mankind, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The Egyptian uh, version of that. Yeah. So um, a lot of people are familiar with like Horus and Osiris. And um, I didn't even know about Ptah until, again, I read Zechariah Sitchin. But yeah, Ptah, P-T-A-H, he's actually the first god of the Egyptian pantheon. And he's briefly mentioned as, uh, yeah, the engineer, the creator, basically the scientist who uh, brought Egypt out of the murky waters. 
um, literally and and uh, physically. But as far as we know, does uh, Enki ever get punished for doing things? I mean, going against the gods or because he's part of the gods, the hierarchy, this bureaucracy up in the sky, nobody's really going to pu- punish him. Like today, the elite get in trouble and they don't get touched, you know, like Ghislaine Maxwell or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I haven't come across anything that states that he was, uh, you know, put in trouble per se. I mean, there are some texts where I not actually I poisons him, but that are in, you know, rich for power. But um yeah, I haven't come across anything yet that says actually deliberately, you know, punished for what he's done. Oh yeah, definitely. Very cool. And uh with the next question I have, should we move through time to see how this character evolves? I want to get to the Hebrews. And as you mentioned, the Hebrews, and as Vance mentioned too, he was simply God's, uh, again, uh, major lawyer, uh, prosecutor, and all that. And he was uh, the book of Job, as Vance said, that's where he even is called one of the sons of God. He was part of the uh, angelic host, if you would, uh, no rebellion or anything. And um, to be clear, we could say that this figure the son of God named Satan, he changes during the Babylonian captivity, right? We have uh, Zoroastrianism to thank for it. Yes, absolutely. So when the uh, Jews or Hebrews were um, captive, held captive by the Babylonians, they were exposed to a lot of their, you know, religious beliefs, which at the time um, involved, which in time involved Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism, I didn't really know much about it before the book, but um, I had to study it for the book. And I was like, and I was introduced to this whole world of dual dualistic ideas. Right. And it was clear, it was clear that that's where the idea of Satan and, and God definitely came from. Yeah, I think that's been pretty much established because that's when things change. Uh, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. They destroyed the first temple. They took the elite to Babylon, and they were obviously exposed to uh, being part of. They became part of the royalty of the city to uh, Zoroastrianism, which was very big in Babylon. And then the Persians came, liberated the Jews, and they went back to Israel. And that's when we start seeing Satan. And of course, as you probably agree, it was a I don't I don't want to call it a brilliant idea maybe inside because before it was kind of like uh, even like Isaiah says God says I'm in charge of the good and the bad and this and that and some people are like oh my god we can't put, put him in charge of evil everybody's <laughs> going to hate his guts so they're like ah we'll just put it on Satan <laughs> yes yes the scapegoat exactly <laughs> yeah in the bible the scapegoat is Azazel it's what they yeah. did. Yeah, that's kind of another thing we can get into, but um, that's actually what I get into at the last chapter is where the idea of, of the scapegoat and uh, Azazel and all that comes from. There's different aspects here, right? So you have Satan and then you have Lucifer and then you have the fallen angels and and the, and their whole crew and what they did. And all of it just kind of gets lumped up into just Satan. Yeah, very interesting, but we still have that core, and I think, uh, as we'll talk about, or I keep saying, the Gnostics were actually closer to the Sumerians, and there's research they were part of this 
very ancient sort of mystery religion. Um, but uh, something we also definitely have to talk about because it's so popular. <clears throat> Excuse me. It used to be popular just in the occult, but these days it's becoming more and more popular even with uh, mainstream Christians as things uh, are more open. But that's the Book of Enoch. Uh, mm -hmm. How did the Book of Enoch change Satan or influence Lucifer? Or what are your views on it, Eddie? All right, so the Book of Enoch is definitely definitely enigmatic. Um, and for my uh, bulk of what I learned from it, I read uh, The Forbidden Mysteries of Enoch by, I think, Elizabeth Clare Prophet. And she states that apparently this book used to be very influential, um, you know, the first and second century BC, so influential that it, it was basically canon you know, and but it was later thrown out by the early church because the early church didn't like the idea of angels once being corporeal or, or physical. And apparently, and the Bible actually has a, a direct quote from the book of Enoch, I believe, in Jude. Right, yeah. And then Jesus does quote him here and there. You could easily say he's he knows the book of Enoch. Let's put it that way. Exactly. Yeah. Elizabeth Clare Prophet, she makes some good points about that, too, that it, it's pretty clear that Jesus knew um, the book of Enoch. And it makes sense if Jesus, you know, was who he said he was. It would make sense for him to to want to know the book of Enoch, because Enoch is the patriarch uh, grandfather of Noah, one of the most important figures of the Bible. So it would make sense that Jesus would know that want to know that book or have to know that book. But um, what I think about it is um, I think it's an important piece of literature, at least just for how the religious and occult has been shaped. I mean, I think it's the only ancient book that we have, um, you know, pertaining to the biblical mythology that talks in detail about the fallen angels. I mean, it even gives them names, talks about them interacting with us. And, and it's uh, it definitely shaped the idea of Lucifer. Yeah, and it's a bit different though because yes, these these uh, watchers, as they're called, the they um, egregori in uh, in Greek, they also are kind of like Enki. They are giving humanity technology, makeup, beauty, science, art, but unlike Enki, they're sort of they the author of Enoch sees them as ultimately negative creatures. It's like something is changing, right? And yeah. suddenly the managers of the universe are not as cool as we think they are. <laughs> yeah, Enoch makes it clear in it that they're not to be trusted and um, they're being deceiving. <clears throat> uh, but uh, yeah, I kind of see the the well Zechariah Sitchin he um, talks about the Book of Enoch and correlates how the Watchers actually has a correlation in its Sumerian word um, the Igigi. So in the Sumerian pantheon or, or world of things, we had the Anunnaki, which were the elite gods, and then we had the Igigi, which were it was literally I guess translates to the Watchers, and they were kind of the more custodial gods, as William Bromley would put it. Um, the custodial gods who kind of did all like the labor and stuff and and those gods were kind of had like an envy towards the Anunnaki and, and uh, interacted with us in in good or bad ways 
So if those gods were real to any extent, I think those are the very same watchers or fallen angels that the book of Enoch talks about. Yeah, makes sense. And then this this vibe really starts also influencing uh, Judaism because, again, I'm, I'm trying to get a, a visual. You've got, all right, we've got this evil guy named Satan here, but you've got sort of the book of Enoch crowd that later influences uh Paul of Tarsus, because he thought, yes, the powers and principalities, the god of this world, the princes or archons are managing this universe. They've screwed up. They gave the wrong Torah to Moses. It's just Paul is also putting this vibe too, and even tells, uh, I think it's in Corinthians, he tells women, uh, make sure when you're praying you veil your face because these horny angels are going to show up. So he knows about the watchers and the Nephilim. And this then, of course, later really affects the Gnostics who are like, well, not only are they mismanaging the universe, not only do you need this cosmic being called Christ or Sophia, they created the universe. They are just in complete control. So I'm sort of thinking out loud how this stream goes. Uh, And uh, so I wanted to talk about now is, is we're setting the stage then. Christianity comes about and you would say that when Christianity started in a lot of circles, Satan was probably still closer to the old Hebrew version, right? He was uh, testing Jesus. He was, uh, I mean, Origen said that uh, Satan could be redeemed. He wasn't this font of evil. What do you think, Eddie? Yeah, I kind of think that too. And I'm kind of thinking right now too, trying to get this stream and I guess I'm kind of thinking out loud right now, too. But um, to go back to what the question you asked me is, you know, what do I consider myself when it comes to like some sort of affiliation? Um, well, lately I've been reading a lot of a lot of Jung, a lot of Jung, uh, and uh, I just finished reading the CIA's declassified document, uh, Project Gateway. Mm, oh yeah, cool. Did you have you looked into that? Uh, no, very briefly, very briefly. Dude, it's intense. It's it's only about thirty pages. Oh wow! Yeah, and I I think everybody should read that. Like Damn. it's so it's so intense. I was like, this could definitely create another religion. That's how intense it is. <laughs> but so lately, I've been more of like the Jungian mindset. We're like almost like because we have two different schisms here. We have we can see the ancient text as history, or we can just see it all as philosophical or a blend of both. Where where these beings stand in the real world, I don't know. You know, none of us have really seen them. I don't I don't know if I can trust that any of the ancient writers have actually seen them. Um, so in early in early Christianity, they whoever these Anunnaki were, whoever these fallen angels were, they were seemingly gone by that point. Um, if not at least in hiding, and that's where we get the idea of. Know, the inner earth, the reptilians, um, you know, Illuminati and all that stuff. Right, so the by, bloodline, all that stuff, yeah. Exactly. So by Jesus' time, these beings were definitely at least not here in, in plain sight. So, And the idea of Satan was definitely still barely forming and let alone the idea of Lucifer. So I think it wasn't until after Jesus' time that the idea of Satan and Lucifer really started to become metaphysical and archetypal. And then now it's even, it's even worse. I mean, that, that now it's, it's even worse to the point where, where 
the metaphysical archetypal archetypical um, concept of them, the, the occult the took that and and took it to the extreme. Is is uh, like for example, Lucifer to the occultists or to the Christians is real. He is real, but he exists somewhere where we can't see him. No, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, I mean, as uh, Robert Price said uh, on our show, one thing you won't find in the Bible is uh, Satan ruling hell. <clears throat> it doesn't happen. There's the worm. There's the angel Abador. You'll have things like Lucifer falling from the sky. You'll have Paul saying he's the power and principality of the air. But he's Rome in the early times of Christian. He's roaming the earth doing his stuff. Uh, you know, he's testing the when Jesus gets taken out into the desert that we uh, it's we use the word tempt, but the original Greek could easily be tested like uh, Satan had to test Jesus to make sure he was up for the mission for Yahweh. So like you said, it's it's sort of evolving here and there. And then, of course, then you've got the Gnostic stream, which is definitely closer to the Sumerian. But I think the big. Uh, you might say the big change we have all of a sudden has to be with uh, St. Jerome, right? That's when things get really interesting and we, we reach a point of no return with Lucifer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The transition. Yeah, if you could explain to the audience of what happened. Okay. So, of course, the Bible consists of two books. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek via the Septuagint, and then from the Greek to the Latin Vulgate, and then um, from the Latin Vulgate to the English King James Version. Now, the Latin Vulgate was very important because that was primarily what Rome used, and Rome, as we all know, pretty much conquered the world and set up what you know, the uh, Western world would be today. Um, so it was very influential. And um, prior, so in the Latin Vulgate is where the word Lucifer becomes um, a, well, in, in Latin Vulgate, Lucifer was there, is where we get the word Lucifer, put it simple, is where we get the word Lucifer. But it was a lowercase Lucifer. And it wasn't until it was translated into the English that it became an uppercase Lucifer. And Jerome, there's some interesting speculation with Jerome because, um, well, I guess it's, it'd be a good time to unravel just where we get the idea of Lucifer in general. Mm -hmm, sure. So, because um, that's actually how I started the book. I, I started the book by asking myself, who is Lucifer? How do we even know that name? And so I went, I started there and I found that we get the name or the word Lucifer from the verse of Isaiah 14, 12. And now in the English version, Lucifer is only found in one place. And it is in Isaiah 14, 12, the famous verse, Oh, Lucifer, how art thou falling, uh, fallen, and so on and so forth. But in the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, Lucifer is used a couple of times and, and as a lowercase word to denote something that is bright or, or shining. And it's kind of like where we get and, and from the, uh, the Greek where, where we would see Lucifer, we see the word phosphorus, which is the equivalent, something light, something, something bright, 
And then in Hebrew, we would where we see Lucifer, we would see Hallel. And Hallel means the same thing, something bright, something shining. It's kind of like where the word Hallelujah comes from, like praise or, or brightness. Um, but uh but 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 so um, yeah, Hillel, Jerome, Be- Hillel Jerome. Ben Shahada. That's exactly. that should be the original uh, name instead of uh, Lucifer. Yeah, exactly. And in the cover of my book, you'll see Hebrew, and that's actually what it says. It says Hillel Ben Shahar. Um, but yeah, so in the original Isaiah fourteen twelve verse, as you said, it it states Hillel Ben Shahar, which is uh, Hillel Ben Shahar is saying Hillel son of the dawn or shahar which was a deity of the dawn so halal was actually a name so it was saying halal ben shahar halal the son of the dawn how art how art thou fallen and then the greeks took halal and put phosphorus because that was it's uh you know simile in, in greek but um halal as i unpack in the book if we uh, if we kind of deconstruct who he was then that brings us to Astar. So El-Halel actually was an old Canaanite deity um, known as Astar, son of the Don. Don or Shahar was also a Canaanite deity. And in the Baal cycle text, uh, Baal, for some reason, he, he steps down from his throne and um, the gods are kind of questioning, well, who's going to... St- Who's going to step on his throne? It's not like a matter of like war or mutiny. It's just like a simple, like clerical thing. Like Baal is like, uh, I don't want to sit on my throne anymore. <laughs> and so the gods are like, well, who's going to do it? And then Hillel steps up to the, to the, to the, uh, the duty. But then um, later on, it's decided, oh, never mind. You know, Baal is actually going to keep, keep ruling. So um, Hillel just kind of like goes back to his kingdom. Um, so Isaiah, being you know an ancient scribe, knowing these ancient tales, was using that as an allegory to the king that he, of Babylon that he was actually talking down to. Yeah, I think it's the king Sena Senacherib, and he was yeah. laying siege to Jerusalem. Yep, yep, Senacherib. And so Isaiah is basically using that ancient story of Hillel or the god Astar to uh, sort of, uh, what, mock or say this is what's going to happen to you? Yeah, because and it gets deeper too because um, we also have to, it gets deeper because Hillel is also a reference to the star or planet Venus. Um, there, in the ancient times, of course, the, our, our ancestors had a, a a great admiration for the constellations and for the zodiac and, and the planets. And in, in Hebrew, from my understanding, as Zechariah Sitchin put it to me, they're they're very full with their words. So a lot of words have double meaning. So Hillel doesn't only mean something to be shining and bright, but it also means Venus, which Venus, as we know, is the shiniest and, shiniest and brightest star um, prior to the sun's rising. It's the shiniest, uh, shiniest planet in the sky right. you know in the morning which is all the whole where the idea of Hillel, son of the morning or lucifer son of the morning so that's where that whole idea also comes from it's also a, a, an entendre to venus which venus in its in its uh, celestial mythology also is known as the rising and falling star 
because it rises before the sun. But as soon as the sun comes, it, the sun outpowers and outshines it. And it makes sense. And so this became confused because later on people assumed this Lucifer was a proper name. Uh, they associated him with uh, the font of evil or the representation of evil. At least Christians did that. And but also making it even more or stressing why this happened, you put out a very fascinating story or historical fact or possibility, I might say, that Jerome wasn't exactly making a mistake. He might have had a little underlying dig because he did not like this bishop whose name was Lucifer of Cagliari who was very popular, his followers were calling Luciferians. Again, back then, that w Lucifer was actually a very cool name. You know, it yes. wasn't what we think of it now. He was uh, sainted, I believe. And Jerome might have just thrown that in to sort of take a dig at this bishop he had issues with. Yeah, absolutely. So another layer of entendre. So we got Hillel, Phosphorus, Lucer, Lucifer, meaning Venus or something bright. But yeah, even in, in Jerome's time, there was a there was a, a saint or a bishop uh, now known as Saint Lucifer of Cagliari, and he was like a fiery bishop opposing um, the new church that was being formed out of Rome. He was an opposer of the of Arianism, which was this weird schism that Rome was using to justify their their rule, saying that they were now the Christ incarnate where St. Lucifer was kind of staying true to the church, saying, no, only Christ is Christ. He's the only one that could be deemed as the son of God and ruler of earth. And uh, later on, he was basically taken out and um, uh, exiled and uh, put to shame. And, and Jerome wrote about this in, in, his, his, uh, in his text known as the altercations of the Luciferians. So he saw this, he witnessed all of this. So yeah, there is great speculation that, that Jerome actually threw another entendre on top of Isaiah's verse and deliberately used <laughs> Lucifer's name for that. Yeah, I think it's pretty pretty clever myself, but uh, or maybe it was unconscious, you never know. We can go back to getting Jungian, but again, once, uh, once this hit, history started changing, evolving, suddenly Satan was uh, the rebellious angel cast down, Yada, yada, yada. Vince, do you have a comment or a question about all of this? Oh, not so far, except that I'm kind of hoping that someday we'll have a Pope Lucifer. That would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll go real well. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, I think Lucifer, like Adolf, you know, there's certain names ain't going to happen. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that one's done. Let's use that. Well, uh, we are at the end, Eddie. It's been a great conversation for the audience. I definitely think you should get the Lucifer mystery revealed and uh, the sequel unveiled, uh, which yeah. <laughs> just joking. But um, it's a it's a good book. It's a it's a tight, cogent read that takes you through history. And uh, there's a lot more than we talked about in this interview. He makes an excellent case. Where can uh, individuals find out more about you? And, of course, we'll have it on the show notes. Sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, you can get the book on Amazon, hard copy, paperback, and Kindle version. 
or you can go to Instagram at, at esoteric Eddie and DM me if you'd like me to personally mail mail one to you if you don't want to support Amazon. Um, and you can find me on YouTube at esoteric Eddie TV. Awesome. Well, check it out. And uh, are you working on any other books or documentaries? I'm always working on videos. I got a couple of videos and documentaries up on my YouTube. That's kind of like the, my thing. I work on little videos just to keep content going. But um, all next year, my plan is to just just uh, get this book out there. But I do already have a couple of book ideas in mind. I think my great work of my life is going to be, um, well, coming to my conclusion about Jesus. I think eventually. Oh, wow. Because uh, I was thinking you can't do better than Lucifer. And you just did. <laughs> you went even higher <laughs> yeah i gotta i gotta make a conclusion for myself eventually on that but um i think before i do that i'll probably be working on just, just this whole youngian thing that's really been like spinning my mind around i just read his book on ufos which really yeah, sp- spun my it's mind more relevant too. than ever yeah so um yeah there'll be some things in the works though stay tuned on instagram or youtube Awesome. Well, we look forward to anything you do and good luck with everything. But uh, first of all, Vance, uh, thank you for joining us. I was going to come up with some pun about the devil, and I'm like, eh, I can't. You know, what I'll is- carry it for you there. Thank you. Thank you. I, and what I was going to say is, I enjoyed being the devil's advocate tonight. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. I had a great time. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, Eddie. Thanks, Eddie. And good luck with everything, and we hope to have you in the new future if uh, if the devil allows. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Good night. And there you have it, oh, you of the broken places. The first part of our interview with Eddie. Getting more sympathy for the devil, are you? In our second part, we finally address how the Gnostics viewed the devil then move down history to see how Christianity evolved their opinion of Satan in the Middle Ages. Then we deal with how occultists modified Lucifer, including Blavatsky, Eliphas Levy, the Rosicrucians, Freemasons, and so many others. You know Eddie will speak of Baphomet, the Church of Satan, and what's going on with summoning demons. And you know we'll share our favorite depictions of the Prince of Darkness in film and television. And much more. So please become an AB Prime member, Patreon at Patreon, or Red Circle subscriber for the full damnation. And it helps grow this Red Pill cafeteria. I won't shill too much, but don't forget my voiceover availability. Whether it's an audiobook, commercial, podcast, game, documentary, or whatever, I can bring stellar results to your project with down-to-earth professionalism. Some have asked if I only do occult content, and the answer is no. I've done several podcast intros, organic vitamin and music video spots, and meditation course narrations. I'll even narrate the part of Lucifer in your next project. Also keep in mind that through the holidays, you'll get a free copy of 10 Snackable Meditations if you subscribe to AB Prime or a medium-tier Patreon level. Furthermore, the Finding Hermes program is discounted more than 40% and the annual AB Prime membership is now 20% off. 
I do have an Amazon wish list if you want to help for the holidays. as some of my equipment that uh, already will need some upgrades in 2022. Other than that, keep shining like a morning star because you are a star, as both Crowley and Plato said. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.